What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's podcast is an interview with Jeremy Levine. Jeremy is the founder and CEO of Underdog Fantasy. Underdog has raised hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital from people like BlackRock, Liontree, and Mark Cuban. And Underdog is now one of the fastest growing fantasy sports companies on the market. Jeremy and I talk about the ever-changing sports gambling marketplace, why product innovation is paramount, the ongoing regulatory discussion, how own media can be an asset, and much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Jeremy, so let's get right into it. All right, Jeremy, thanks so much for doing this today. We got a lot to talk about. I think the most logical place to start is for people who may not be as familiar with the sports betting space or fantasy sports in general, they might know Underdog for sure. They may know FanDuel. They may know DraftKings. Like, what is it that separates your guys' business from these other companies? What do you guys do exactly? Just talk us through kind of like the uh, elevator pitch on the business. Yeah, for sure. So awesome to be here. I've, I've been a, been a longtime listener, so fun to finally be on. Look, Underdog is all about building games for American sports fans to increase their enjoyment with sports. We started the company just over three years ago now, and in those three years, have built three unique fantasy games that really try to create a great customer experience um, and bring more enjoyment to sports fans in America. So we started the business with a really simple thesis and, and huge ambitions, right? The ambition was, and, and even more is today, and we have more belief in this today. We believe that if we could build the best products, we would build the biggest company in the space, and that's the sports gaming space in America. And three years in, we kind of feel that more than ever. We believed as long as we could build the best products, that would be the case, right? So we're totally focused on product and innovation and just building great technology and great customer experiences. Yeah. And when you think about product, that feels a little bit unique, right? And it sounds kind of crazy to say, because when people go, they start a business, they're like, okay, the product matters a bunch, obviously distribution's important and all of that. But if the product's not good, then you know no one gives a shit. But it feels like in sports betting, as someone who's kind of like been on the outside in and now more in it, that hasn't always been the case. And one of the examples I like to use is more recent. It's like the the pen and the barstool deal, right? Like they had pretty good distribution, I would imagine, on the barstool side, but people that tried the product just didn't really like it. The experience wasn't great and it didn't seem to convert people over from the sports books they were already using. Is that something that you feel is unique to you guys or are more people caring about the product now? Definitely. There's definitely been a lack of innovation and a lack of kind of care for product and customer experience for sports fans in America. I've spent now 14 years of my life building sports games. And it's always just kind of sh shocked me looking around like there's just such little innovation, right? 20 years ago, we all thought fantasy sports was just what Yahoo and ESPN offered, right? Just the season long fantasy league. And then there's, there's been some innovation with, with real money fantasy sports and daily fantasy sports. Sports betting, if you look at the kind of winners of wave one in sports betting in America, They've all taken the products from the UK and Europe and just brought those products to America, right? They're not differentiated products. At peak, there were over 60 different sports books in America. They were all the same, same products built on the same third-party technologies. They were targeting the same customers with the same offers at the same times. The only differentiation, the only advantages that the ultimate kind of leaders in the space right now, FanDuel and DraftKings had, is they had started with fantasy. So they had that brand and that user base already. But the products are all the same. And if you think about who the products are built for or who the sports book was built for, it wasn't the American consumer. The American consumer is so different, right? We didn't grow up betting on sports. If we did, we had to jump through a lot of hoops to do it because it's been illegal, right? Until five years ago, we grew up playing games. 60 million people in America play some form of fantasy sports, right? We, 90 million, there were 90 million March Madness brackets done in March. 
We do survivor pools, pick em pools, Super Bowl squares. We collect sports cards. There's all these ways we've created to increase our enjoyment with sports, to express our opinions on sports that are all distinctly American. And there's no one who's building the product for the American consumer. So that's why we make such a point to say we're focused on building for the American consumer and the American sports fan unique games, right? We think there's so much more still to be built. And as we go forward, that's what kind of this next wave of that's coming at sports betting will be defined by. We'll be defined by innovation and customer experience. I wholeheartedly agree with that. The thing I would ask, though, is for people who don't know maybe exactly what you guys do or what the difference is, let's give an example. Like, what is your most popular game? Is it pick them, best ball, et cetera? And let's describe exactly what it is and why it's a little bit different. Yeah, we, we've got three core games. We've got best ball, we've got drafts, and we've got pick them. And I'll, I'll describe them all quickly because what's most popular depends on when. Um, as of a couple of days ago, it was best ball, right? Best ball is a season-long fantasy game. So it's just like traditional season-long fantasy, except after you do the draft, there's no management whatsoever. No setting your lineups, no waiver wires, no trades, no effort, no work, right? When we ask- So you do the best part, the best part you do the best part, and then everything else is done with. Yeah. Exactly, right? So we, over the course of kind of build my years building fantasy sports games, would constantly talk to, to players and say, hey, what's your favorite part of the season? The answer I got sometimes, which is a great answer, was winning. But if it wasn't winning, it's the draft, right? And everyone would answer the draft. And so we built a game that is simply the draft. And on top of that, we've built tournaments. So the way a tournament works, we just ran Best Ball Mania 4. It's the largest fantasy sports tournament of all time. $15 million in prizes. And we filled that tournament. We filled it the day of, of kickoff on Thursday. And the way that works is you do a draft in a 12-person league, just like you're, you expect. And then if your team is in first or second at a certain point of the season, it advances. And then each week, if you're in the top half of the bracket, your team continues to advance until the final week. If your team comes in first, this year, the winner is going to win $3 million. All right, so that's a game that people have loved. It's, it's a game that hardcore players love because they can do thousands of them. And we had many people this year doing thousands of real money basketball drafts, but also casual players love because if you think about the traditional season long experience, think about how much time it takes, right? You do a draft and that's the part you enjoy. You want to be social. You want to do it with friends. After that, you've got to come back and do a ton of work. We take that away and more and more the kind of more casual players are coming and gravitating to best ball so they can get the enjoyment of fantasy without all the effort. So that, that's one of our games. A second game is daily and weekly drafts, right? Similar format, you do a draft of players for this coming week's football games. And then a the third game we offer is a really quick and simple game called Pick'em. So the Pick'em game is a really quick and simple form of fantasy sports where we give you different options of either player versus player. So who's going to throw for more yards this week, Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers? Well, obviously Mahomes. And you can, you can make different selections. Or is Mahomes going to have higher or lower than two and a half touchdowns this week? Higher. You get to make these quick, simple selections and really quickly have a fun fantasy experience where you don't have to spend all kinds of time doing a draft. You don't have to compete against hardcore players using spreadsheets, but it can still really express your opinions and increase your enjoyment with the games. Yeah, that's amazing. How did you get started in this, by the way? We should probably rewind a little bit because I don't think people understand the history either. You've been at this for a long time and have built some really successful products alongside Underdog. Yeah, so that's, that's a long story. I'll try, to, I'll try to not take up the rest of this. Graduating college, I had this idea, and this was 2009, to create a sports stock market. It came from my favorite thing to do as a little kid, which was collect sports cards. As a kid, all I ever wanted to do was collect sports cards. And I always wanted the rookie cards of the players I thought would be good because I thought down the line I could sell them for more. 
unfortunately back then I uh, I ended up investing a lot in Vince Carter instead of Kobe Bryant. So probably would have would have done a lot better, had a lot more money if I if I had, if I chose Kobe. Though Vince didn't have a bad career, but I always thought about it as, as stocks. And so as I was in college and thinking about what I wanted to build, I said, or what I wanted to do, I'm like, this, this should exist. So I graduated college at the time, 22, knew nothing, no one, no connections, no money, and kind of just like started to try to build this. Ended up making some progress, launched a real money sports stock market about a year later, but pretty quickly saw the growth that was happening in, in daily fantasy sports. FanDuel was, was the largest at the time, but they, and we're starting to get traction, but they must have had a couple thousand customers. DraftKings didn't exist yet. Draft Street was the second largest company. Saw the early kind of growth signs and looked at my co-founder and said, hey, I think we can build a better product. And so we did that, built it in six weeks, launched it within two weeks, had made more money than we had in the prior couple of years doing the sports stock market and pretty quickly realized, hey, this is, this is where we should focus. And that started about a 13-year journey for me now building fantasy sports games. There were all kinds of twists and turns with that business, Star Street. Ultimately, we sold the assets of it to DraftKings and had the vision for a game that we thought would be better for customers, right? We really understood at the time the salary cap format fan, fantasy game that FanDuel and DraftKings offer how tough that was for the non-hardcore customers, right? The top couple percent won so much of the money. There was a report McKinsey put out once that the top 1% won over 91% of the money in the salary cap format game. And we saw that from our data as just a really hard game for novice customers and a really tough user experience for someone who didn't want to spend an hour and be really hardcore and be using spreadsheets and, and deep data. I mean, we wanted to build a simpler, more casual fantasy game that could be enjoyed by kind of a wider range of people. And that was the impetus for Draft. And so Draft, again, a, a fun kind of crazy widening journey. We ultimately sold Draft to what's now called Flutter in 2017. And at Draft, built Draft-style games and then built the best ball game and started to really popularize best ball. And how do you think sports betting has changed over that time, right? Obviously, that question can kind of go a million different ways. But if we look at what's happened in the United States, it's gone from daily fantasy. Obviously, now there's the repeal of past, but things have changed as well over the last few years. Like in your mind... Where are we in this whole thing and where are we headed? Yeah, so PASPA, as you said, was repealed five years ago. That's what made online sports betting no longer federally illegal. And obviously states have now gone to legalize it. I believe we're at 27 states that have legalized some form of online sports betting now. Look, five years ago when PASPA was repealed, it was very obvious to me what this wave one would look like. And it was very obvious that FanDuel and DraftKings would be the winners, right? They had the fantasy customer base. They had the brand and the money spent. And they had all these advantages as we kind of went into wave one of sports betting. Their focus has just been on kind of getting on the rails, right? It's been take that sports book experience that was built for the European customers, the customers in the UK, and bring it to America and open up states as fast as possible. And that's been this wave one. I think we're at the tail end of wave one now where it's very clear those are the two winners. There's a couple others kind of holding on. And... That, that's wave one. Basically use their balance sheet to kind of bully people around in the early states, get as many people as they can onboarded through market share and not worry too much about differentiating themselves through product or games or anything else like that. Exactly. There's been next to no product innovation, right? They, they kind of tout same game parlays, which that's pricing. That's not product. There, It's the same sports book you can use at any other place in the country or in, in the world, in any other countries. And they've just kind of forced that down Americans' throats. Now, over the next five years, the next five years are going to be about innovation. It's going to be about building games for American consumers, right? The existing sportsbook experience, it works really well for the top 1% of customers, those who are kind of thinking about this in a professional way, who really understand how sports betting works and who have experience with it. But think about the, the casual customer, right? I think Mahomes is going to have a great game this weekend. You land on FanDuel and DraftKings, which 
are great sports books for that top 1% and you haven't been there before, good luck, right? Like you've got to navigate markets. You've got to go six clicks deep to land on Mahomes props. And now you're just paralyzed by choice. Do you think he's going to have a good game? Is he going to have over two touchdowns? How about three? How about four? Is he going to have 300 passing yards, 310, 320, first, first quarter, second quarter, second half, all these different stats, right? I just want to express an opinion that I think he's going to have a good game. That's not a great experience on a sports book today. Yeah. And how do you guys do the reverse, right? Like it, it's pretty obvious that they've done a, you know, a good job, we'll call it from an online sports betting perspective, grabbing market share early on and bringing that in from a revenue perspective. But how do you guys do the product innovation while leading people back to more traditional games, right? Which is just over-unders, you know, betting the spread, iGaming even to some instance. Is there part of that on your roadmap or is it just solely focused more on you know, what we'll call online traditional games, but historically more popular. Yeah. For us, the vision is to offer all sports games people play, right? So that includes traditional ways to place bets, but with very different navigation to make it a more fun, more enjoyable, more confident experience for a wider set of customers. But a big focus for us is on the games, right? It's on fantasy sports games. It's on the pool-based games, March Madness brackets, Survivor Pools, Pick and Pools, Super Bowl Squares. It's creating a lot of mini games. We want playing on Underdog to feel like playing a game rather than placing transactions. Yeah. And as kind of a observer of this over the last few years, it feels like it went from the executives, many of which I've I've talked to, have, you know, somewhat relationships with and I've had on this podcast at the companies that we're mentioning here. They went from saying, Okay, we're not really worried about that. Those companies are, you know, not on our radar, we're doing our own thing, et cetera. So now it feels like there's a lot more noise around your guys' relationship when it comes to the regulatory aspect of this business. It almost feels like you guys are now a threat, if that makes sense, right? It's like, okay, we didn't really worry about this. We didn't think it was going to be as popular. But now that it is, is this legal? Is this allowed? Is there a way we can kind of stop this from happening? Is that the sense you're getting from the bigger players in the space? And if so, just talk me through kind of like what you guys have dealt with over the last few years. Yeah, that, that's exactly what's happening. FanDuel and DraftKings are doing exactly what monopolies often do, where now that they know we're beating them on product, and again, in our third year this year, we're almost double the size either, either of them are in fantasy sports, right? We are beating them in fantasy sports, and they know we're not stopping there, that we're going to go build games and more games for their consumers and ultimately end up taking their market share. So they're doing what, what incumbents often do, and, and they're kind of trying to use their money, their power and influence, and work their relationships to try to have the laws change because they can't compete on product and providing great customer experience. So they're trying to do it in the back rooms. And we felt that, right? Over the last year, they've been trying to come down and say that our pick'em game is sports betting. When they know, because they were largely involved in writing the laws, they they know that's not true, but they've been doing anything they can to try to slow us down, whether it's talking to regulators, trying to get laws changed, talking to different business partners of ours, trying to coerce those business partners not to work with us. We hear it all the time. So I'm sure you saw about a month ago, I published an open letter to the community and to our customers so they could understand what's happening and making sure to show them, kind of bring this all out into the light and show them why there may be misinformation being spread around and that we will always follow the laws and always build great games for the American customers, right? That is what our focus is. And is it fair to say that, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the saying is, right? But they're essentially trying to cut off a smaller piece of the business to save the larger piece of their business, while maybe they think that you guys are using this as a Trojan horse to be able to get into the bigger piece of the business, which might be more traditional betting or other things like that. Yeah, so, so they know a few things. One, they know that we are getting into 
I mean, we have sports betting licenses and are going, going to build sports betting games as well, right? So we're not just stopping only in fantasy. The reason we're building betting games is because the betting laws and regulations allow you to do way more. In fantasy sports, you've got to focus on and kind of fit within specific rules, right? To be a fantasy game, it's got to be a game of skill that is based on accumulated player statistics from more than one team. There's tons you can't do in fantasy that we want to be able to offer our customers, which is why we're going to get sports betting licenses. Yeah. And how does that process work? I imagine that they probably have some influence over that as well. Look, they they have relationships and they've given a lot to politicians across the country. But ultimately, the regulators in the different states look to say, hey, is this company upstanding? Right? Do they take compliance seriously? Do they take responsible gaming seriously? Do they KYC their customers? Do they make sure their customers are in the right states? Do they pay their taxes? Should we allow these customers to offer these products in our state? And ultimately, multiple states have evaluated us and said, yes, of course. Yeah, I think the most frustrating part probably is that, I mean, I've used Underdog. I know plenty of other people have as well. Many people listening to this podcast have probably used it too. And the product like legitimately is good. And I'm not just saying that because you're here, right? Like it's a good product. Awesome. It's easy to use. It's very clear. It's simple. It's clean, so forth. And a lot of these sports books are almost exactly the opposite. And in some cases, what they're doing is they're hurting the consumer simply to maintain their market share or their market position, which theoretically should be the opposite of what the regulators want to do. But, you know, money and and power are are crazy things. And in some instances, you know, they have influence over people that they maybe shouldn't. And I think, you know, we've seen what I would equate to hit pieces over the last few months in different publications and stuff like that. And I imagine as someone who's like trying to build this business and comes from a place where, you know, you've run certain three or four, I guess, startups at this point, you know, you're solely focused on trying to build products that people like and have enjoyed for years to go at that from the reverse and say, oh, we're going to protect our balance sheet. That's got to be pretty frustrating. Yeah, for sure. First of all, thank you. Thank you for the kind words on the product. I mean, that that is what we always want to focus on, right? Is making sure that we have great, simple products for people to enjoy. And yeah, you're spot on. Look, I think the important question is like, what does this do for consumers, right? What happens when you have a monopoly? And today, FanDuel and DraftKings are almost 80% of sports betting in America. And what are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to make more money. And you've, you've heard it from them, right? You've heard it from Jason Robbins' mouth. We don't want winning players. Those are words he said. We don't want winning players. And you see it in their actions, right? At their investor days constantly, FanDuel and DraftKings both are bragging about how they can eat, they are increasing their hold and they can continue to increase their hold. Well, that's what happens when you don't have competition. And look at how they limit customers, right? You look at DraftKings limiting customers to dollars sometimes, right? Whenever they see a winning customer, they can just limit them because there's nowhere else for that customer to go. And that's what they're trying to protect. They don't want options for their customers because that means they can make more money. Yeah. You, you mentioned a good point there, which is like a lack of options for customers, right? And it does feel like, you know, whatever sports book we want to call out or we want to talk about or bring up, there's just not really enough options, right? And we know that, I don't know the data exactly, but I think it's like the average person downloads two sports books or something like that, right? They're not going to create a bunch of accounts. The signing bo- sign up bonuses are all commoditized at some point or another. And there's really not like a ton of different products or different options for people to go offer. And my guess is that you imagine that that brings up a bunch of consequences or problems for consumers in the long run. Of course. I mean, again, that's that's what happens when you have monopolies, right? Is that there's less choice for customers. And again, for like for us, we often say we have one competitor. It's the sports book, 
right? We want to build a better customer experience than the sportsbook. Well, FanDuel and DraftKings, again, today, 80% of the market, right? They are doing what they can through legislation, through trying to stop a competition. And it's not just with us. It's in a lot of different ways to try to reduce competition to make sure they're the only show in town. And look, it's not, it's not a playbook. I mean, if you look at the leadership, the FanDuel CEO, Amy Au, she was the president of Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster is probably the most hated monopoly in America, right? Why can't you get your Taylor Swift tickets today? And, and she's been there. She's been in depositions around that, right? Like this is a playbook she knows. This is a playbook they know. Yeah. I want to spin here for a second and get your comments and some more recent news that has come out of the space and around Penn and ESPN. They obviously signed a deal recently. They essentially just ditched Barstool very quickly and said, we're going to go sign this deal with ESPN. They're paying a licensing fee, a couple billion dollars, and they're going to go open up ESPN Bet. What are your just general thoughts on kind of their attempt to go build this sports book now? Too little, too late, just right. Is it going to work? Is it not going to work, et cetera? Look, I don't want to, I don't want to specifically opine on kind of others in the arena trying to do something. What I kind of always think when I see people competing in this space is that the way to succeed is by again building unique product, building great product, and thinking about the customer differently. And so, if they are able to use the ESPN assets to drive awareness for a unique product they create, they have an opportunity to succeed. It seems like with Barstool, they weren't really able to do that, right? If you look at the pro- the Barstool sports book, well, it was a sports book just like all the others. And I think that that partnership could have worked if they were able to build the right products for that customer segment. And that segment needed something different than the same old traditional sports book. It, it seems like you guys have done a mix of different things when it comes to audience. How do you think about like owning some of your own IP and building out shows and things like that versus what we'll call like renting some of this from individuals or people or places like Barstool or somewhere else, right? Not necessarily Barstool, but but media companies that have reach already. Is that something that you guys are like gung-ho on one way or is it just kind of like a mix and match between finding the right value for the right price? Yeah, it's doing a lot of both. Ever since we started this business, we knew we wanted to be a home for our sports fans and again, bring them things that they might not be able to get elsewhere. So we've done that through some of our news and content offerings. Right now, if you follow us, you know that we break the fastest player news versus any single source. If you're following us, you're going to get news from us first. Yeah, you guys, you guys do. You guys do. How do you do that? I was wondering that actually. I see. We've, we've is got a, Adam Schefter working for Underdog team. now? Like I, uh... <laughs> Adam Schefter is not, but, but we've got our own versions. Yeah. And look, for us, that, that's how we want to think about CRM, right? What do our customers want? What can improve their experiences with sports? Well, guess what? Those are also, those are the times where they take action. We see it across best ball all the time. When there's a trade, when there's an injury, when there's a big piece of news, we get a huge spike in activity because people want to express their opinions on that happening, right? So that everything we're doing ties together and it will tie together even more going forward. Then on the content side, we've really leaned into, we've really leaned into our own owned and operated content. We've got a bunch of phenomenal shows. We've got Gilbert Arenas, Gil's Arena, which is doing, I mean, we're doing hundreds of thousands of views an episode on that. We've got an amazing football show. We've got basketball show with Rashid Wallace. We've got the scheme with Colt McCoy. We've got a, another football show with, with wide receiver Steve Smith. We've leaned a lot into content and producing our own content to make sure we can have a direct relationship with our customers and kind of meet them where they are and bring value to them. But then also we've got a bunch of amazing partners because there's a lot of people out there doing great things and that have built a lot of respect from there and and a lot of reputation within a community. And when we can be associated with the right partner that brings underdog to their community and wants to share underdog with their community, that's a huge value for us, right? Underdog builds games that are meant to be played with friends, right? Our top source of customers 
by far are our customers, right? Over a third of our customers come from directly attributed referrals from me doing a draft and saying, hey, come do a draft with me or me doing a pick'em entry and saying, hey, come do this pick'em entry with me, right? Come fade me, come ride me, come do the same thing and let's enjoy this together, right? That's a huge part of what we do. Yeah, I remember I tweeted out like a pick'em slip a while ago. This was like one or probably two years ago at this point. And I got like four or five text messages like pretty quickly being like, what is that, <laughs> right? And it was back to the idea of like the product was just so clean and simple. And it was just like, hey, Mahomes, do you think he's going to have more than two and a half touchdowns? Oh, yeah, I think he's going to have a great game. There we go. Done. Let me go bet on that. And I think that was a big piece of it, too. But it's been fun to see, like, when you reference the news breaking stuff, I've seen that, like, it's like, you know, XYZ player is out for the game. And I'll frequently actually see it on underdog, like, updates before I see it anywhere else on Twitter. And... You know, you, you skirted the question a little bit and wanted to hide your source, but I understand why, because it's it's very easy to see why that's so valuable to people that are in this space, because then they come to your platform as not only a place to play games, but a community of sorts and place where they're going to get real time news and a website or an app that they're visiting more frequently than just when they place a bet. Exactly. I mean, again, I sound like a broken record saying this, but it's about delivering value and creating great experience for American sports fans. Yeah. And so it's about building games, but it's about building pieces around those games as well to give people more confidence and more enjoyment in playing the games. I want to talk about iGaming specifically. We've talked about this in the past. Many other people have seen a lot of changes in iGaming over the last few years when it comes to product offerings and like what people are actually trying to do. I wouldn't say that a lot of it has necessarily worked, but what are your general thoughts on iGaming, where we're at and where we're headed there too? Look, iGaming is a tricky one for me personally. I mean, it's it's out there and the, the common refrain is as soon as sports betting became legal, FanDuel and DraftKings turned their back on fantasy sports. And as soon as there was the potential for iGaming, they're, they're going to turn their back on sports fans in general. It is, and, and explain why that is. Because it's more profitable? It's way more profitable. I mean, it's in, I believe it's active in five states now and it's doing billions and billions of dollars in those five states. And it's the most important thing to the bottom line of FanDuel and DraftKings. And look, it's a tricky one for me because it is a way to build shareholder value in this space. But personally, I don't want to be putting slot machines in people's pockets, right? There's some forms of iGaming I love. I love poker. But a slot machine in people's pockets, like I don't see how you can square that with being a responsible operator and doing right for your customers. I don't think that should be legal, to be honest. I don't think it should be legal. I, I agree with choice and I agree with all this kind of stuff, but in some instance, games like that, you're essentially playing the lottery, right? And the lottery's legal and I get it and you know there's an appetite for it and you can say that you're putting money towards education or wherever they say that some of the money goes towards. But I think I lean much more heavy towards your side of the equation, which is that there's some kind of skill-based games in there that are still fun to play and people enjoy and they should be able to bet responsibly and do all that kind of stuff. But then there's some where it's like, Okay, that's kind of crossing the line a little bit here. And what are we doing? Are we are we trying to hurt consumers in an effort to, you know, build these businesses? And I'm not just speaking about FanDuel and DraftKings. There's plenty of other businesses here and abroad. But, you know, morally speaking, is that the way that we want to approach this? And I'm not sure it is. Totally. Again, for us, the mission is increase sports fans' enjoyment with sports. And that's the focus. I want to hear, like, what's one thing that that you think to be true that other people may not think to be true in this space? And I'll give you a second, right? Because this could be today, but it could also be in the future, like a prediction or something like that, where you, you know, it could be something that you think has a high likelihood of happening or even a low likelihood of happening. But something that you as a sports fan and someone that's been in this space for a long time believes to be true, that would be kind of against the grain today. I've got a lot of, I mean, a lot, and I've got a lot of different ideas running, rushing through my head right now. <laughs> so let, let me try to say a few of them. Very high likelihood that in 10 years, we will be the largest, Underdog will be the largest sports gaming company in America. 
And that's because of the other beliefs and the other things we believe to be true that others seemingly don't. There is more to be built for the American consumer and the American sports fan than the experiences that are offered to them today. And a focus on product and a focus on innovation is ultimately what will create the biggest company in the space and the biggest opportunity and will create better experiences for sports fans. There are so many more people who want to engage with sports today than have the products that they want to engage with. And that's a massive opportunity. And so if you fast forward five years, sports betting is not just going to look the same way it does today. It's not going to be an old and tired casino sports book that was built for a different customer that's simply about placing a bet. It will feel way more like a game. Yeah, I like that. How many sports books do you think exist long-term in the US or you know, what, what we'll call sports gambling companies and what level of market share do they have? That's a great question. It's tough to guess right now because it won't be many if they just do the same things, right? They're not beating FanDuel and DraftKings playing the same game as them. That's what I'm trying to get at, right? Is it a bunch of different competitors that maybe look and feel like you guys more that are able to gain market share, but you're not going to own 90% of the market, right? Or is it two to three concentrated players that are going to own 95% of the market because they grabbed a bunch of land and, and, and people came to them first when the states went live? Yeah, it's look, when you look around, there are just not many innovating in sports games. And I mean, that, that's why you heard me say it earlier, like, when asked, we say we have one competitor and it's the sports book. What we're going to build is, is a different experience for a different customer at a different time in a different place. And if others can do that effectively, then they will succeed. And there are some startups that are doing interesting things for sure. But if the incumbents of the people just trying to say, here's another cross-sell vehicle, here's my casino loyalty rewards members, they're going to like our experience more because they've got our, our rewards card in one, deep in one of their wallets. I don't think those, I mean, we've seen it, right? Those don't end up succeeding. Yeah. Did you see the other day the Chiefs put up a line on Twitter, the team? I did. I did. That was, that was crazy. I mean, I never want to like- It's a far cry from five years ago. Exactly. I never want to like be like, oh, I could have never imagined that because in some instance, I think people knew kind of like where we were headed in some of this stuff. But I mean, the NFL like has done a complete 180 on their thoughts on gambling, on their position on gambling. And Obviously, they have some sports gambling deals now, and the teams are obviously open to doing some of this stuff too. It just is crazy to see. Yeah. It's look, it, ultimately, you have to think of kind of what are people's incentives. And sports games are obviously huge for the leagues and the teams. They, they drive activity, they drive engagement. And so ultimately, the leagues obviously are, are huge fans of fantasy sports. And it's no surprise that, that they're huge fans of betting, but as long as it's done responsibly. That's what I was going to ask. I mean, this is kind of like a sort of difficult question, I guess, because in some instances, it's like, you know, there's a bunch of rules and regulations put in place to to make sure people are gambling responsible. And it's up to a lot of people to be able to do that themselves, too. But what we've seen in Europe has changed a little bit over the last few years from a regulatory perspective. But even if you look at the sports leagues, like the Premier League, they recently banned the sponsorships on jerseys from from sports gambling companies. And there's been a lot of problems that have come up over the last few years. Is that something that you, you worry about here in the U.S.? Like these leagues are moving maybe a little bit too quick? Or do you think that they're putting kind of the appropriate stuff in place to make sure that we don't get to that point? Yeah, r responsible play is something we, we worry about a lot and we think about a lot, right? Again, we want to make sure people are enjoying our games. And that's why we want people playing on underdog. And I think as some of these larger companies just kind of push to profit, you see the, the thought of people playing responsibly and bottom line conflict with each other. So it's a total passion of, of mine and of ours as we really build Underdog from the ground up to be a social, enjoyable experience. And it's, it's one of the opportunities we have, like in everything we do, 
we want to make sure we adopt best in class, but then figure out how to do better and how to innovate. And we're doing that on the responsible gaming end as well, where we have a, a pretty big announcement coming in about a month. So I'm not going to spoil that here yet, but we're, we're doing some really interesting stuff there to help spur innovation and make sure that people can be playing these games forever, enjoyably. If it took you three years, as my last question, to get to a million customers playing on Underdog, how long does it take you to get the next million? I got it. I'm doing some math. And let's set the over-under, and maybe this is the wrong over-under, but let's set it at a year and a half from now. Lower. Lower? Definitely. And what was your over-under a year? I feel like nine months is probably a good... Uh, okay. Uh, All right. So I way undershot that. Okay. So nine months is the over-under. Yeah. I like that gro- I mean, look, our growth, is just, our growth is just continuing to accelerate massively. Yeah. All right. That's awesome, dude. Well, thank you so much for doing this. We've got, we've got a lot more good product coming for, for the consumers, right? We're I love it, man. We're continuing to build good, good stuff and you'll see more and more coming out of us. I love it. I've enjoyed playing myself and I know a lot of my friends have too. So love to hear that. Thanks for doing it. I appreciate you coming on and I learned a lot. So I hope everyone else did too. And uh, we'll certainly be following up on this in the next few months here. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Joe.